Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, pandemic-induced budget shortfalls have gutted some programs meant to help those with unmet mental health needs. We no longer have funding for anything else in the program, like being able to provide funding for treatment or funding for basic needs. We'll have more on that, plus a look at how the state's online checkbook is performing after a much-needed upgrade. And we'll learn about the impact of the pandemic on two of our senses. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Colorado's state government spends more than $30 billion each year, with most of it coming from your pocket in the form of taxes and fees. But despite laws guaranteeing you access to the receipts, the state has long neglected a website that lets you follow the money. As KUNC's Scott Franz reports, a new software upgrade is starting to change things. Before we see how well the state's new online checkbook works, let's first look back at how badly it was performing two years ago. That's when I invited Jeff Roberts to the Capitol to help me find out how much the state health department had spent on travel that year. He leads the state's Freedom of Information Coalition. It's loading. Still loading. It's still loading. Did you bring any cards to play with while we while we wait? Or? I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> The website is supposed to offer a real-time glimpse into government spending, down to every last paperclip and pizza ordered by the governor's office, which is why we were looking at it. But after 20 minutes of waiting for the site to load, we gave up. There was never any funding or staffing associated with the development of this system. That's Doug Platt. He's a spokesperson for the Department of Personnel and Administration. Back then, he admitted they were not following a law mandating things be updated every five days. And today, the state still isn't getting any money to update its online checkbook. But something did change in December. The Office of the State Controller leveraged some new software that actually originally was put into place for functions over the Secretary of State's office. In other words, the state found out it was already paying for a software program in one branch of government that promised to turbocharge the clunky, decade-old checkbook. We used to have to create a report, which was labor-intensive, and then take that report and manually upload it on a weekly basis. Now, it basically interfaces with the state's accounting and budgeting system called CORE. And so the CORE system automatically updates on a daily basis. Armed with this new information, I once again invited transparency expert Jeff Roberts to check out the changes with me, but this time we did it by Zoom. The first thing I noticed is that it was a lot quicker. You didn't have time to do a crossword puzzle or read a novel uh, while you waited for the query to run, like with the old system, and that's a huge improvement. But are the records useful? Roberts wondered if we could use them to answer questions you might have about government spending around the pandemic. How much has the state been spending to lease the convention center as a possible hospital for COVID patients, which they didn't end up needing, which is a good thing. Initially, we ran into a few dead ends until we figured out that we needed to be searching for payments to the city and county of Denver, which owns the downtown convention center. Office of the State Architect, Disaster Emergency Fund, COVID Emergency Spending. Okay, that 
could be it. After that, we had no problem finding the receipts. They showed taxpayers paid more than $21 million for a field hospital that served no patients. But there's all sorts of other questions anybody might have at any particular point in time that they could possibly find in this database about how the, how the state of Colorado spends money and how much revenue it gets. So I think this is, this is um, very worthwhile. It just takes a little bit of work to understand the data. However, the online checkbook does have limits. You can see who is getting the money, but it often takes open records requests to actually learn what the government purchased. And those requests can cost a lot of money. These are the most frustrating questions that I get because it's very, I, I, I have some advice for, for people who, who uh, ask me about this, but it's, it's kind of limited advice because the law is really on the side of people in government. For example, many journalists have recently complained on Twitter about public records costing hundreds of dollars to get. That's why Jeff Roberts and other transparency advocates are asking lawmakers for reforms to make getting the records easier and less expensive. But top lawmakers, including Democratic Senate President Leroy Garcia, are doubtful any changes will be made soon. I personally, and at least to the best of my knowledge, don't know that it to be of the highest ranking priority currently in the Senate. When I asked, the state was unable to provide data on just how many people are using the newly updated online checkbook. They say the older version had as many as 1,500 users a month. I'm Scott Franz at the state capitol. In 2019, Colorado launched a new program to keep people with unmet mental health needs out of the criminal justice system. But over the summer, COVID-related budget cuts gutted these mental health diversion programs. Three of the four pilot sites had to shut down. Boulders is the only one that has stayed up and running throughout the pandemic. KUNC's mental health reporter Lee Patterson is with us now for more on how that program is getting by. Hi, Lee. Hey there. Before we get into the budget cuts, tell us how these pilot programs work. So generally, program participants have been arrested on some low-level offense, like sleeping outside or stealing food, resisting arrest, that sort of thing. Many of them are experiencing homelessness. Almost all of them are dealing with some serious mental health issue, schizophrenia, bipolar, substance abuse. So once they get a mental health screening and check all the boxes for eligibility, Instead of going to jail, they're funneled into one of these mental health diversion pilot programs. That means they're hooked up with a behavioral health navigator like Mary McKenzie. She's with the Boulder program and describes her job like this. For some of my folks, that's working with them to get their ID, their social security card, their birth certificate so that they're able to access more resources. A lot of times I try and figure out where they're at in the housing process and start that, start connecting them to shelters if they're needing it, and then really hope that we can get them to the place where treatment is a viable option for them. The idea here is that jail just is not a great place for someone in a mental health crisis. There is broad agreement among clinicians, advocates, law enforcement officers on this issue. But we know that a very high percentage of inmates are suffering from some sort of serious behavioral health issue. So these four mental health diversion pilot programs were meant as an alternative path. Since they got up and running back in 2019, participation was steadily increasing and then COVID hit. So district attorney's offices and courthouses, those are the locations where some participants were screened into the diversion programs. Those offices were shut down. Then over the summer, as part of COVID-related budget cuts, the funding for these programs was cut from just over a million dollars down to 100000 
Boulder's program is still operational. The Larimer County just relaunched its mental health diversion program on March 1st after spending some time cobbling together a local grant. So how have state-level budget cuts impacted how these programs are functioning? Well, Boulder, for example, they're not getting any funding from the state at all. Like Larimer, it's been able to get funding together from a couple of different local sources. It's enough to keep Mary McKenzie on, but... We no longer have funding for anything else in the program, like being able to provide funding for treatment or funding for basic needs items. They can't afford to foot the bill for private treatment, for example, or for medication co-pays. So she's spending a lot of time just piecing together services. I've been able to work with our food banks to make sure that people have access to food. We partnered with a local thrift store to have clothes available for our individuals. So really just anyone that is providing any kind of service, I've reached out to to share the need that our clients have and try and figure out how to bridge that gap when we're no longer able to just provide that ourselves. Now, another problem with the loss of funding so early on in these pilot programs The state court administrator, which runs these pilot programs, doesn't have a clear picture of how well they actually work. We know that the pandemic has increased mental health stressors. Many are struggling with housing instability and job insecurity, accessing services, you know, like shelters, for example. It's all more complicated because of the virus. As funding has been cut, has Boulder's mental health diversion program seen an overall increase in need? Well, it's hard to say because the pilots haven't been around for very long. Boulder's program, for example, just launched in the summer of 2019, and it's changed a bit over time. But Mary McKenzie herself does think there's been an increase in need. We have seen a lot higher vacuity um, with mental health and with substance use. And, you know, the one thing I've noticed is a lot of people are just stressed in general with how the pandemic is so widespread and how much stress and trauma it's brought about for folks. Will funding for these mental health diversion programs be reinstated down the line? There's no indication that funding is going to be restored. And to begin with, the original legislation that established these pilots only did so through the summer of 2020. Elena Shively, she's a senior deputy district attorney in Boulder County, and she works on diversion programs. She says that in Boulder, they will be able to keep on their one case manager for another year. And they're planning to continue applying for some grants and other funding sources to keep the whole thing going. Mackenzie, the behavioral health navigator, thinks it would be a big loss if these mental health diversion programs aren't consistently funded over the years. Not just to the individuals we serve, but it's to the law enforcement partners we work with. It's to the individuals in our community um, that try and support this population. It's to the jail, the court. It's widespread. KUNC's Lee Patterson covers mental health. Lee, thanks for reporting on this. You're welcome. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. State lawmakers are set to spend tens of millions of dollars to bolster Colorado's access to firefighting equipment like planes and helicopters. Jesse Paul has been reporting on what the state is planning to do for the Colorado Sun, and he is here now with more. Jesse, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So last year, as we know, unfortunately, it was one of the worst on record for wildfires all across the western United States. And it sounds like state lawmakers are now really trying to get out in front of this issue. Tell us about what they're planning to do to address the need and and how many how many millions are they allocating for this? It's a little bit more complicated than just bolstering the state's firefighting resources because Colorado has always had, you know, access to planes and helicopters. 
but, but what the state lawmakers are trying to do is effectively fend off competition from other states and make sure that Colorado always has aircraft available where other states, you know, might be pitching in and seeking those at the same time. So, you know, while Colorado had those big fires over the summer and in the fall, you know, other states had them too. And so there is this competition for aircraft, which typically are federally managed and, and doled out in different places. So what the state lawmakers are trying to do is spend somewhere in the range of upwards of $40 million here to do a few things. One would be to extend leases for single engine air tankers, for large air tankers, for helicopters that they normally use, but to boost them, you know, sometimes even I think doubling the amount of time that we have those dedicated to Colorado, and then also spending about $31 million to purchase a so-called Firehawk helicopter, which is basically a modified version of the military's Black Hawk helicopter. It's a super specialized firefighting tool that a bunch of fire departments in California, including Cal Fire, use. I think you wrote that it can also be used for other things. So, I mean, even if it's not needed in firefights, it could be used for search and rescue and things like that. The other interesting thing is that if there's not fires in Colorado, the, the aircraft can't be sent to Wyoming or to New Mexico, you know, other surrounding states. And those states would actually have to pay Colorado for its use. So, there is an opportunity for the state to actually recoup some of the money. You spoke with Vaughn Jones, who's the Wildland Division Section Chief at the Colorado Division of Fire Prevention and Control. I'm wondering what he says about, you know, why the state needs this kind of aerial equipment. First of all, it's important to understand that Colorado actually only owns two airplanes that are dedicated to wildfire fighting, and both of them actually can't fight wildfires. What they do is they circle above a wildfire and can kind of say to to firefighters on the ground, you know, here's where hotspot is, here's what the map looks like of the fire. They're called multi-mission aircraft, and they're these little Pilatus PC-12. Very cool aircraft, but they actually don't drop water or anything like that. So the rest of the aircraft that Colorado uses are leased out. These single-engine air tankers, the very large ones, the helicopters. And so being able to purchase this Firehawk would give Colorado kind of an extra peace of mind to have year-round access to a firefighting aircraft that can be deployed anywhere across the state, very quickly. So that so that's part one about why this is important. And, and something that, that Jones said to me that I thought was especially interesting was that, you know, compared to the late 1970s and late 19 and early 1980s, Colorado's core fire season is now 78 to 84 days longer. And when you really think about that, I mean, that is a huge shift in, in the amount of time that firefighters and firefighting aircraft in Colorado have to be ready. So having this access to more uh, to these longer leases and having their own aircraft really gives Colorado like a competitive advantage and ensures that, you know, if a fire breaks out, say in March, that Colorado isn't left high and dry and having to try and fly a plane in from California all of a sudden to respond to it. And especially if we're going to see that kind of fire activity all over the U.S. when everybody needs their equipment. Exactly. You know, if, if, if Colorado needs a plane and, you know, the state wants to be protected against federal emergency managers sending a plane to California that's really needed here, and it, it could get quite messy. What about mitigation and prevention efforts? Um, is that part of the state's focus, too? It is. So part of this larger wildfire spending package includes some mitigation and some flood recovery efforts as well, kind of in recognition that the fires are going to become more plentiful. One of the interesting pools of money that's going to be enhanced this year has to do with allowing counties to have access to kind of like a quick reaction fund. Um, and in the past, I guess this fund has been depleted kind of quickly. And so there's been some concerns among you know small county sheriffs about you know, calling in an aerial attack on a wildfire. Essentially, what the state wants to do is to say, we want you guys to throw as much money at a fire as soon as possible so that it doesn't turn into a mega fire. And, and that's also kind of the important thing with this aircraft. I mean, these 
planes can really make the difference between, you know, a small blaze and a really big, large event like these troubles of fire, the Cameron Peak fire, which can be just absolutely devastating. There seems to be a much greater sense of urgency from state lawmakers right now. What's your sense of what's driving that? And is this bipartisan? So the package is 100% bipartisan. And I think the urgency is just driven by the fact that there's this realization that the summer that we had in 2020, just how record-breaking it was. I mean, that's possible now going forward every year. And there just needs to be this money, I guess, available to, to respond to these events and to kind of keep up with other states. You know, California, for instance, has a statewide, state-owned aircraft fleet of like 50 planes for firefighting. And like I mentioned before, Colorado has two planes. And so if, if the state really wants to get serious about fighting these blazes and, and being able to properly respond to it, I think there's this recognition among lawmakers. If they can spend this money and make these investments now, you know, $30 million might sound like a lot of money for a Firehawk helicopter, but it's a lot less than a billion dollar natural disaster. Jesse Paul is a reporter for the Colorado Sun. You'll find a link to his reporting at our website, KUNC.org. Jesse, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. One of the more baffling symptoms related to COVID-19 has been the loss of one's sense of smell. Researchers don't yet know exactly why this happens, but the phenomenon has been observed with other types of coronaviruses. This is also happening with children who get COVID-19. Although the disease has not proven to be especially severe in its impact on children, many kids recovering from COVID have had trouble regaining their sense of smell. For some, the process of learning to re-smell can even take months. Now there's a new clinic in Aurora designed to help kids through that process. It's led by Dr. Kenny Chan, chair of the Department of Pediatric Otolaryngology at Children's Hospital Colorado. Dr. Chan, welcome to Colorado Edition. Well, thank you for the invite. So you are heading up a new clinic, the focus of which is to help teens and children who have lost their smell due to COVID-19 regain that ability. Can you start by telling us what we know about why COVID-19 leads to this loss of smell in the first place? This is probably one of the bodily senses that is least studied and least understood. Currently, no one knows exactly what actually cause the loss of smell and taste, but it probably has to do with some of the nerve endings or the neuroepithelium that is in the roof of our noses that collects odors to assist the body to be able to smell. Are children's senses of smell differently impacted from adults? Well, we know that children's ability to smell obviously is not that of the adult. They may not be able to smell certain things because, for example, they have not been exposed to, say, the smell of coffee unless their parents are coffee drinkers. So the sensory ability to smell obviously grows and develops with age. But in terms of whether or not COVID affects children differently, differently. That probably is true, but not fully understood, because we know that more than half of adults that come down with COVID lose their sense of smell, some of them temporarily, and some of them for a long time. Whereas in children, we all know that a lot of children are asymptomatic, and they may not necessarily tell the parents and articulate this change in their sensory ability. So it's a difficult question to say for sure that COVID affects children's smell differently than adults. Let's talk about the actual training with this program that you'll be involved with. You're utilizing four different oils, which kids and teenagers will smell over a period of three months. 
explain exactly what they're going to do, how it's going to work, and then how it will hopefully help them regain the sense of smell. We have discussed it among ourselves in terms of how to select odorants that younger children could identify. And they would include orange, lavender, peppermint, and the fourth one is eucalyptus. And the idea is to sensitize the nose and exercise the nose twice a day and having the parents or caregiver present these odor to the patient and reinforcing what exactly they are smelling. Instead of asking them to identify a specific smell, we want to give a group of scents. For example, for orange, we're going to ask the parent to say, this could smell the same as lemon or a citrus or a fruit. For lavender, we would use a group of scents such as flowers, garden, or perfume. For peppermint, we would ask the parents to say, this could also smell like a mint candy or toothpaste. For eucalyptus, we would use forest and hiking trail. So the idea is to present each bottle for 10 seconds and doing the reinforcement after sniffing and then going through all four bottles and doing it twice a day for a total period of three months. After every month, our uh, nurse practitioner will call the parent to find out whether or not the child is the same, better, or worse. Olfaction training is not something new. The analogy that I would use would be if after injury, a limb does not work, you go and see a physical therapist. And this is light physical therapy for the sense of smell. Dr. Chan, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you for your time. While olfactory dysfunction has been directly linked to cases of COVID, smell is not the only sense to suffer the consequences of the pandemic. As it turns out, our sense of hearing has been impacted, not directly by coronavirus, but by our response to it. Kate Carr is president of the Hearing Industries Association. She says exposing ourselves to high volumes places a big risk on our hearing health. And in a year full of Zoom meetings and online schooling, this risk has only been exacerbated. Kate, welcome to Colorado Edition. Thanks for having me on. How has our hearing been impacted by the pandemic? Like many things associated with the pandemic, doctor visits are down, visits to hearing care professionals are down, but the risk that we're wearing headsets or AirPods or earbuds and perhaps listening at sound levels above 85 decibels, which would do harm to our ears. And it's the kids too. We have our kids doing homeschooling. So we do have a large number of people who might be increasing their risk for hearing loss. What is it about headphones? Why can listening through our headphones be detrimental to our hearing? The risk is really associated with the level of sound, and that's where decibels come in. Normal speaking is 60 decibels, so that's something to keep in mind. So there are some apps on phones that can give you the decibel reading. But if you're not looking at an app and you're sitting next to someone and you can hear whatever conversation is coming out of that person's headset, then it's too loud. According to research at the Hearing Industries Association, fewer than 16% 
80% of adults ages 20 to 69 who need a hearing aid ever use one. Fewer than 30% of adults age 70 and older use one. Is this a, a matter of not prioritizing our hearing? Overall, we know that about 10% of Americans have some form of hearing loss. That's 38 million or more. We really don't know the statistic. What we do know is that people tend not to pay attention to their hearing loss, particularly as they grow older and there's age-related hearing loss. So it's a gradual decline that you don't notice until perhaps it's a more advanced degree. Is hearing damage or hearing loss something that can be reversed? That has not been something that we have accomplished yet. So in the interim, we have to rely upon some type of hearing device. Our ears are transmitting sound waves to our brain. It's our brain that processes the sound so that we can understand whether it's speech or noise. So it's our brains that get very active in this. And that's why when you lose your hearing, you can suffer some associated brain loss. Hearing loss can be related to other health issues. Can you tell us more about that? We know there's an associated risk with cognitive decline. If you have a mild hearing loss, you have a greater risk of getting dementia. If you have a more severe or profound hearing loss, that risk of getting dementia is five times higher. It doesn't mean that all people who have severe and profound hearing loss will get dementia. It means your risk increases. That was Kate Carr, president of the Hearing Industries Association. That's our show for today. On the next Colorado edition, we'll learn more about a bill moving through the state legislature that would give in-state tuition to people with historical ties to present-day Colorado. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production staff includes Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.